Good morning. Welcome to worship at First Presbyterian Church of Columbus, Georgia. We're glad that you're here to join us as we worship God by offering our prayers and singing songs and listening to scripture. Please come in with us that we may worship God together. The first lesson comes from the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. Let us listen that we may hear. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and he summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your ancestors, Terah and his sons, Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him and brought him through the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Now therefore, revere the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors served in the regions beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought our ancestors up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did this through great signs in our sight. He protected us along all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the, the Lord drove out all the, these other peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions of your sins. You will forsake, the, if you forsake the Lord, and serve foreign gods, then God will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Joshua said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your ear and hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve, and him we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made statutes and ordinances for them at Shechem. This is the word of the Lord. Indeed, we give thanks for the sun that shines brightly this day and warms even as it breaks into our room here and into our hearts. Let us listen that we may find in the second reading God's word to us today from the Gospel of Matthew, the 25th chapter. <clears throat> this is Jesus speaking. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his servants and entrusted his property to them. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, 
to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off to a, at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy servant. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Either enter into the joy of your master." And the one who had the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy servant. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew, did you, that I reap where I do not snow, and I gather where I do not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take this talent from him and give it to the one with ten talents, for all those who have will more be given, and they will have an abundance. But for those who have nothing, and even what they have will be taken away. And for this worthless servant, throw him into darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Really? What's he up to? I am not the best language student there, there is. I acknowledge that. You may know that Vicki, my wife, spent her career as a Spanish teacher. And occasionally I would go to uh, see her at school to take something or to deliver some item, and she would introduce me to her classes, and she would say, this is my husband, and they would do this in Spanish. And then I would say something like, no habla español, mi esposa habla español. And they would look at me. They don't get it. Yeah, I don't speak Spanish. My wife speaks Spanish. It's a great help when we go to a Spanish-speaking restaurant, I will tell you. But, you know, that really is all the Spanish that I can get away with. I did study languages in college and in graduate school. I took French and Spanish. And when I got to seminary, there was Hebrew and Greek that I had to make my way through. And there's a lot of that that I covered. There's a lot of language that I don't remember. In fact, most of what I studied I probably don't recall at this point. But one of the things that I do remember is that there is a class of words that is the same in two different languages. They're called cognates. A cognate is a word that is similar in sound and in meaning in two different languages. 
For example, the English word international has a French cognate of international. The English word ideal is ideal in French. My, my pronunciation may offend you, I'm sorry, but that's what it is. Vocabulary in French is vocabulary, with an A-I-R-E on the end of it, as is anniversary becomes anniversaire, or something like that. You get the point. Well, this was wonderful for the kind of language student I was, because I had a built-in vocabulary and I didn't have to learn new words. It's great, you know? It is absolutely wonderful. It happens with French, with Spanish, German, any number of languages that we, we encounter. There are these cognates. They have this, a, a similar root and a similar meaning in different, in different languages. But sometimes words may look or sound alike in one language as another, but they have a very different meaning. These are called false cognates. They are, they are similar in, in, as, they, as you look at them, but their meaning is different. They come from a different root. They have a different uh, purpose. In Spanish, exita does not mean exit. It means success. Carpeta is not the stuff you walk on. It's a folder. Chocar is not to choke. It is to collide. Different meanings, different roots. These are false cognates. They have similar sounds, but different meanings, different functions. This is true, I think, in Scripture as well and in our spiritual lives. There are things that look like one thing and sometimes take us to a different place. Jesus tells this tale that I just read, this parable of a rich man who goes away and he leaves the management of his affairs to three of his servants. Each receives a different amount of talents. The Greek word is talenta or talaton. In our English translations, particularly the more modern ones, we have, they have rendered this as a, an amount of money. The message translation, which um, is used, I, which I use frequently, renders this a thousand dollars. A talent is a thousand dollars, but it wasn't. It was something that was different. A talent was a weight that could be applied to a valuable substance in the ancient world. A talent of silver was worth six thousand denarii. Now, what's a denarii? A denarii was an average. Day laborers' wages, 6,000 times daily wage. You do the math. You're beginning to talk about some serious cash here. Um, a talent of gold was worth 30 times more than a silver talent was. So it was worth 180,000 times a denarii or the daily laborers' wages. That's quite a bit. James Howell, who is pastor of the Myers Park Method United Methodist Church in Charlotte, suggests it means something like a huge bucket full of gold or a bank's CEO mega bonus or winning the Powerball lottery. Those big signs you see, maybe that's what, that's what a talent is. And these servants received 
five or two or one. A fortune, a fortune is what these servants received they were given to do with. I must confess that more times than not, this parable of the talents and the servants makes me nervous. Talking about money makes many people nervous, not just personally, but when we talk about money in church, it can sometimes bring discomfort. We tend to look down at our shoes or look across at something. We don't want to maintain eye contact. It's difficult. In fact, there's a, there's a description for this. It's called money anxiety disorder. It's, it's real. Google it. It's real. Some of us, some people don't like talking about it. We don't like making plans for the future. We, we think things will all work out. We think things will all work out for our organizations that we trust and think are valuable, like the church. The Scripture today is in a stretch where Jesus talks about what the kingdom of heaven is like. All throughout Matthew, beginning from early on, Jesus gives these little nuggets where he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in a field. Or the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with the uh, flour until it was all leavened. Or the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who is looking for fine pearls. Or a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. Or a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Or a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. Or ten bridesmaids who took their lamps to go out and meet the bridegroom. The kingdom of heaven is like all these things. But Jesus doesn't use that entry, at least as Matthew tells it, as he begins this parable. He simply launches into it and says, there is a man who calls together his servants and entrusts his property to them. He gives to each of them according to their ability, and when he comes back, he has an accounting for how they use the talents. Is the master God? And if the master is God, then what does that say about God? It seems like this kind of God is like an Ebenezer Scrooge character who is minding his books while he lets Bob Cratchit's fingers freeze off, not to mention what's going to happen to poor tiny Tim. Suzanne Guthrie, an Episcopal priest and writer, shared her response to this tale. I see myself as the servant in the parable who buried what was given to him and summoned before the master admits his failures to risk investing as the other servants had done. I look at my, I look at my life and I send myself to that place of wailing and gnashing of teeth or at least over to the couch. Some of us do that. We think, what have we done? We can't, there is just so much, there is so much to a, a deal with. How do we then use what is given to us? All of us have different things that we use in our lives. We are given things in different ways. I had a conversation with my father one time about vocation. My father was a physician. And he told me, he said, he said, son, as he called me, um, he said, 
many people come to me with needs in their lives and they, they entrust their lives to me. They can do that because I'm a doctor and I'm trained and I know, how to, I know what to do. But I could not do that if they came to me with questions about how to manage their finances. What he was saying was that we have people that we entrust our financial well-being and our life to. It's not everybody. And there are other people that we entrust our lives to for our physical well-being. There are other people that we entrust our lives to for our spiritual well-being. And there are other people that we entrust our lives to for our material well-being, our households, our schools. There are people that we entrust our lives to. The amount of talents varies over all of them. But we all, all of us, in one way or another, hold something of another's well-being. We all have talents that God has given to us, not just money, but skills and gifts and aptitudes and attitudes, and we offer those up to the world. We offer those up to each other. We offer those up as we live. God gives these talents, whatever they are. They come to us in a theological affirmation. They come to us from God. We, they may come into our hands through different ways, but ultimately God as the creator and the ruler is the one who shares them with us. And as the tale that Jesus told tells says, some make their talents grow. Others shrink in fear from using their talents. Fear captures their hearts so much so that they do nothing. A lot of times we may be more like that third servant than we want to admit. Australian theologian William Loder put it this way. The tragedy of this third parable is that many people are afraid of losing God. They are afraid of endangering God. And so they want to protect God from adventures to resist what is out there. Protecting God is a variant of not trusting God God is bigger than our religious industry. Sometimes we find God in, is pulling in great profits from areas in which we have deemed beyond God's interest. It is fascinating to have God compared to an entrepreneurial multimillionaire. God's mercy never ends is a way of saying God has capital. Love is rich. We need to encourage people to stop putting God under the mattress. As we begin to trust allowing God to move through us, through our lives, we are changed as individuals and as a community, and we have a better chance to change. There, there, there are rich pickings, so to speak, and the harvest is ripe. Here at First Presbyterian Church, we are in a season of acknowledging that our future is now. It's a stewardship theme, but it is a truth. The life of this church does not depend on the next installed pastor arriving. It depends on how you use the treasures God has already given you now. Financially, 
spiritually, emotionally, relationally, in all measures, among yourselves and in the world itself. Another way of saying this is that we need to avoid the false cognate of faith. Our faith is our trust in God. Moving forward in that trust, we live each day now and into the future. Mother Teresa had a famous saying, God did not call us to be successful, but to be faithful. And sometimes this is used as a way of saying, well, when we measure success, you know, we don't need to measure it as the world measures it. But I think it means something very different. I think it is a paradoxical way to say that when we live in faith, we are successful. Our success is measured by the ways in which we take what we have and we use it for God's purposes in the world, whatever that may be. This year, the stewardship ministry here at First Presbyterian Church, every time you see one of these shirts, think of this. The stewardship ministry is using two measurements of faith. There is sort of the bottom line number. Yes, we know what things cost, and that's planned for. But there is a second measurement that I think is equally important, that is the measurement of individuals and households and willings who are willing to make an affirmation of their faith, a dedication of their faith through a pledge. Last year, there were 123 pledges that were made to First Presbyterian Church of all sizes. That is wonderful. And for those of you who have done that, I thank you. The stewardship ministry thanks you. We are all indebted to you, for you have made it possible for us to do what we have done. But there are others in our community for, who may give regularly or may not, but who, who not, have not made a pledge. And this is a call to make, for you to think about your own spiritual discipline, your own spiritual life, to make a pledge, a financial commitment, there are all sorts of caveats around that. You do that in what is right for you and size for you and all that sort of thing. But to make an affirmation so that instead of 123 promises and pledges, we have 175. That's a pretty big leap. And it makes a statement that the future is now. The future of First Presbyterian Church's ministry in Jesus Christ in this community and in this world is now. It spreads not simply from this room, from this corner, but out into our larger relationship network, to our larger community, to the larger world. We are part of God's family of faith in Jesus Christ. And through that, we share life and hope and goodness. Our future is now. Make that so for yourself, for us, and for the ministry we share together. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's been a privilege to join you this day in worship. 
We're glad that you were here. First Presbyterian Church seeks to serve and minister in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor. Go in peace as you love and serve God.